This hour on KISU, it's the City Club of Idaho Falls. From the Forum, held December 1st, 2022 at the Benyon Student Union Building, featuring outgoing Senator Michelle Stennett talking about the implications of the 2022 elections for Idaho. Find this and all past City Club of Idaho Falls forums at ifcityclub.com. You know, we always say in America that elections have consequences. We say that about city council races, mayoral races, county commission races, presidential races, of course, and it certainly applies to legislative races as always. We understand that there are certain implications of the election of candidate A or candidate B. We're all aware of that because as voters, we pay close attention to the campaign promises of candidates for office. We pay close attention to their voting record. We pay close attention to what they say on the floor of the House or the Senate or in the governor's office. But it's not always clear to us in the transition, that is immediately following the election, just where a legislative body may be heading. What are the implications of the choices of new leadership, which of course has a huge impact on the direction of a legislative body. You can see a more centrist approach, perhaps. You might see a more aggressive approach. We see, perhaps, strong assertions on social issues, economic issues. We get a real sense uh, in the coming weeks about where the legislature is heading from reading articles, listening to newscasts, but there's no better source about the implications of this election for the Idaho legislature than the retiring Senate Minority Leader, Michelle Stennett, whom you all recognize because we've been privileged to host her on a couple of occasions, and she's been kind enough to make the drive from Boise, and today she's made this drive despite the uh, forbidding weather report. Uh, Michelle Stennett, as you may know, uh, holds the record here in the history of Idaho for serving the for the longest serving Senate Minority Leader. She was elected in 2010, filling out the term of her deceased husband, Clint Stennett, who was a marvelous Idaho politician. Uh, and uh, we missed him dearly, and together, uh, Michelle and Clint, uh, the only husband-wife team ever to serve, by the way, as Senate Minority Leaders, have served this state for more than 33 years. That's quite a contribution. At, during her stint as Senate Minority Leader, of course, uh, Michelle served on all kinds of committees ranging from finance to health and welfare to education and carrying the many responsibilities of that office. Her style was one praised across the board, not only by party members, but by people on the other side of the aisle because she was always willing to work with the other side. You know a lot about her career as a senator, and we are privileged today to be able to ask her questions, which will flush out uh, some of her thoughts on a number of important issues. But let me tell you a little bit more about Michelle Stennett as a person. She's well-traveled internationally and nationally, and what we're gonna ask her today, a crucial question, is when she was 16 years old and she was in Peru and the coup occurred, what was that like to be walking down the streets with tanks and rifles surrounding you? We'll probe those crucial questions today. Uh, and of course, she's worked with NGOs and nonprofits around the world. She 
was educated at the University of Oregon, and she has brought so many distinctive talents and abilities to the Idaho stage. Uh, we're very grateful for her leadership role in the Idaho State Senate, and today we have an opportunity to hear her share some views about the implications of the election for Idaho. So let's give a warm City Club welcome to Senator Michelle Stennett. Well, good afternoon, and I'll apologize. I'm glad I'm a little taller than the podium, but I could not get my speech to get printed, so you get to look a little bit over my, my computer today, but thank you for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I always enjoy going around the state and hearing what it is that you have to say regionally. Um, it has been um, quite a week. Uh, last night at midnight, probably more officially at 8 o'clock this morning, I am officially retired, and they have uh, sworn in the new people are going to take over for this next legislative session. It is uh, bittersweet, and uh, it has, as was mentioned by David, um, it's been a long time in the politics. So what I'm going to talk about, um, and I, I, I just want to commend City Club for allowing me the opportunity, is to unpack quite a lot um, according to me. So understanding everybody has different perspectives, um, but we've been at this for a long time, and so I'll just give you, um, as concisely as I can, a pretty large box of things that have happened that you should be paying attention to, particularly those that are, that are in any kind of profession where you're gonna have to deal with the legislative process, um, because you have 50% um, new people you have to make relationships with. And um, it's a huge turnover, the longest in history um, to anybody's recognition, at least for quite some time. The 50% turnover um, with many of the races, as you know from this area, were decided in the primary. And so we had a kind of an idea of what was gonna happen by the time, but so much was a 50-50 race after redistricting and many of the new legislature, a lot of new open seats. So we didn't have an idea of what we were gonna be dealing with until the elections this year. Um, the difficulty with that is when you have so many new people, new people in leadership, new people in the legislature, new chairman, new committee members, um, new legislative branch in some um, fashion, they don't know how to do their jobs. And so you have those remaining and why it was important to see who was gonna be leadership to understand what the tenor of this next uh, couple years are gonna be is because they are gonna have to train these people. And many of them coming in, no disrespect, think that just because they won the election, they could drive the train the minute they hit the building. And they have no idea how the train works. So the idea is um, those that have the parliamentary knowledge and process, which the institutional knowledge this, this year was huge, a huge vacuum. People like myself who've been there, Patty Ann Lodge who has been there, just people who've been there for 15 plus years who um, have been part of keeping um, the rules of order in place are gone. And so those that remain have that added responsibility of trying to make sure that those who come make sure they maintain the order because it can't, you cannot do policy making in chaos and, and how they manage their teams. And I always looked at leadership as a team. I'll say that many don't, but I always wanted to bring the best talents and and professionalism and the things that everybody has spent their lives doing, that's what a citizen legislature is about, to bring it forward so that they can do the best policy making that they can. And you have to be very strategic about that. 
So I look at it as more good policy. Many look at it as politics. And I think they're very different animals, particularly in the Capitol building when you're making policy and balancing budgets in the legislature. The other thing that is concerning, or something that you're gonna wanna watch for, is we have a brand new attorney general. And he has made it not um, pretty clear that he is gonna have his own interpretation of the Idaho Constitution, and he's gonna put people in place in his um, department who will agree with him, otherwise they will not be staying. And um, he is the person we go to for asking for attorney general opinions on policy making. So it will be a radical change, in my opinion, on what we will get as far as what's considered constitutional or not in our policy. So something to look for. Also, you have a very powerful, longest serving Speaker of the House who is now suddenly going to be a not so powerful President of the Senate. And so I'm not sure when that last ever happened, certainly never as being the longest uh, Speaker of the House to be President of the Senate, but they are very different positions. They do lead the floor um, activities, but the speaker is almost omnipotent in his power and how he guides the house. This president will only break ties and make sure you follow the rules of the Senate, but your pro tem has more power and the um, president has very little power on the Senate floor. So no disrespect to Speaker Bedke, but I'll like to see what he's gonna do when he's standing up there at the head of the Senate, when he's so used to orchestrating everything and he's not in charge. And that would be a change. It would be for anybody, for, for, for anyone to make that kind of radical difference. And the rules in the Senate and the House are different. So he better be brushing up on them because um, it isn't House rules. Um, so the, the lay of the land for the Democrats, just to speak from the other side, is gratefully, um, we kept seven seats, Democratic seats out of 35 in the Senate. Um, three of them were by a 1% margin because redistricting did put us at risk on a lot of open seats and a lot of retirements. Um, seven is the minimum we can have in order to cover all leadership, joint finance committee, and committees. If you have anything less, you don't have a Democrat on committees and they have one party making policy in committee where the most important policy making part of our legislative process is, is in committee. That's where people can have a say, that's where people present lobbyists weigh in, that's where you gather your homework and, and you make corrections and make the best policy that will guide, hopefully, um, better the lives of Idahoans. So having one view is never, I don't think that ever serves anyone um, appropriately. They're, unfortunately, they lost a seat in the House, the Democrats. So instead of 12 out of 70, they're 11 out of 70. And they will be losing committee seats. Um, I hope that this, um, and I'll talk about leadership over in the House in a minute, new leadership, but I'm hoping they don't come at this punitively and take the big, like the Joint Finance Committee seats away from them and the big powerful seats. I think it is important for those with institutional knowledge on both sides of the aisle to be in the best positions on the, on the most um, uh, important committees that are available, but it's will be determined in today, probably, about where, who will be on those committees. So where we are now um, in, and what happened um, in the last few days, um, I was over in Boise trying to train a lot of new recruits. There are 17 new senators out of 35, so half of them. And, um, and they don't think alike. 
And they're pretty clear about it. So I, I'm hoping the leadership we picked, which ended up being our old leadership, and I would argue the, the, the current Republican leadership needed to stay in place because you did need to have that, that continuity, legislative understanding, parliamentary process. And they're going to have to manage a pretty hard-scrabbled group of new people who have a real agenda. Right now, they're already trying to change the rules of the Senate because they don't want to be held to them. Um, they've already got legislation that, um, at, the, at first glance, are probably going to be deemed unconstitutional. And so if you don't have a strong leadership in both houses, it's going to be chaotic. Because in my mind, activists never make good legislators. If you ever notice people who are on a bandwagon, who are very vocal about an issue or a political platform or something, want to go to the legislature to be on a higher political platform to espouse their ideas. And when you're in a legislature, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it isn't nimble. Government process isn't nimble, and it shouldn't be. It needs to be rigorous. It needs to be difficult. It needs to be thoughtful. It should include everybody. You, when you do good policy, it has to be the best policy should be for the greater whole of Idahoans. And, and when you have unruliness or um, bomb throwing, that doesn't do us any good. Um, any of us. It doesn't serve any of us. And it shouldn't be unnecessarily punitive or vengeful with leadership on those that don't toe the line, but also not disrupted by the, uh, by the legislature, uh, the legislative members to be um, disruptive in the process. If you run for um, Senate leadership, um, as an example, um, the people that ran against the Senate Republican leadership, um, and they decided, both everybody decided last night who the new leadership would be, um, were freshmen who came in from, um, from various parts of the country and uh, out of the state, and they, they don't even know how to be in the Senate or what the Senate rules are or the rule of law or what the decorum is or how to operate themselves on the floor. But they had the courage, I guess, to decide that they were going to be leaders of the Senate before they ever got sworn in. <laughs> and so, uh, I can, uh, so this is why I think it's important, regardless of what you think about the status quo and who's in there, that would have been the most inappropriate thing to do, in my mind, if, if you wanted to have any kind of productive session for people to come in who thought that they could just blow it all up and then see what happens and, and fall as it may. And I just, I philosophically have very strong opinions about that. Conversely, on our side, um, I have a very centric, as David mentioned, um, I have a very blended district, and it, it doesn't agree. Blaine County doesn't think like Lincoln County or Jerome County or Gooding or anybody in the Magic Valley and very diverse economies. Um, but in order to do good policy, you have to represent and hear and communicate with all of them and make the best path forward. Consequently, anything I passed, I was going to have constituents who were not happy with me <laughs> because it just, they just think alike. But you have to do your best job to be able to talk to them and understand them and find something where everybody gets a little something out of it. I'd rather get 10% of the forest than none of it. I don't think burning everything up because I don't get 100% of something is, is realistic, but oftentimes we run our politics that way. And I, I just think that uh, what it does is it, does, it isn't successful for anyone if you're looking at it from that perspective. You know, running um, policy during a legislature is not glam glamorous. It's a slog, it's not nimble, but it should be rigorous, it should be well vetted, and it needs to be done in a civil environment. 
Um, we work really hard in the Senate, and with a 13-15 Republican split in the Senate right now, which means 13 ultra-conservative, 15 more conservative, but not that conservative, however you want to put the lines, um, is going to mean that the Democrats, the seven votes of the Democrats on some of that policy is going to break the tie. And, um, and they're going to have to work together. And maybe there's going to be a good outcome out of all of that divisiveness of how we got here. When you have, have a, a certain um, uh, equal conflict, then in order to get anything done, you're going to have to learn how to get along with each other and find each other um, in co-sponsorship on, on bills. There are people that I may not have voted with who I disagreed with often, who was my co-sponsor on bills that we did amongst both houses. There were really excellent pieces of, of legislation. You can't burn your bridges. You go piece by piece, moment by moment, and sometimes they're gonna be your biggest advocate and sometimes they're gonna be your biggest adversary. And that is just democratic process. Um, I think we have to get out of our ways of taking that too personally and understanding that if you're gonna look for a fight, you're gonna find a fight. If you're gonna look for something that you can find some way where you can agree on something and you work hard enough at it, likely you'll get there. But you have to come at it from that angle. Um, you may be surprised, um, because I get this often, you hear about everything we disagree on. And I, in the 13 sessions that I've been in, have tallied the performance of the legislature. 75% of what we do in the legislature, we have done well across both parties, across both houses, and probably without much fuss. Not to say that it wasn't hard, um, but when you do it well, you don't kick up the dust on it. All, you just get your heads down, you do your work. Um, we balance budgets every year, and we do policy making every year pretty seamlessly. What you hear about are when we don't succeed, and that's that 25%. Oftentimes, they're the big issues that everybody has a very um, combative opinion about, and I don't need to mention which those are. We all know who they are. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that could be handled better. It's what tends to get into the press and what people talk about because it makes it a little more exciting. If you're doing your job well, it's pretty boring. But when you're not doing your job well, it's pretty exciting. Um, and so, but the 25% that makes the big news and that we disagree on, I'd argue we probably should disagree on because we come from different regions, different economics, different constituencies. Uh, political philosophies, we're never going to think exactly alike. And a good democratic process shouldn't, because we should all be your voice, all sides of it. And because we get elected by the same number of people, by the same process, by the same kind of district lines, we have to have the exact same um, consideration and representation in the building. And when it isn't, it is not following the law. So regardless of whether I'm one of only seven Democrats out of 35 in the legislature, my constituencies, oh, by the way, when I'm elected, I reserve for everyone, not a party. And you shouldn't be just serving for a party. You're serving your independents, your constitutionalists, your Republicans, your Democrats. And if you're not, shame on you. So when you do that, when you think about it that way, if I get muzzled on the floor of the Senate, they're muzzling my Republicans too, and everybody else who I represent. And that is not a good process, and that shouldn't be tolerated. You know, and so we look at, um, at trying to go through that 
process without having a position of anger or mistreatment or condescension or marginalizing. I don't think that serves us. I don't think it serves who we serve or ourselves to do good process. And in my own mind, um, as the anger and fear have escalated and people have become more vocal and physical about it, I mean, we had the death threats we get. I had a building that was burnt down that was because they didn't like my politics. And if they get into your face and they're pointing at you like this and challenging you, I think we all have to learn to say no. I think we need to push the bullies back. And the bullies only understand when you're firm with them and don't tolerate it. We've lost our manners with that. And it doesn't need to be aggressive like what they are doing. All you need to do is say, I'm sorry, your anger and fear is yours to own, not mine. I'm not owning it. And until you're civil, we're not having this discussion. And you walk away. We've got to do that more. Because I would argue that 70% of Idahoans and Americans do not want to tolerate bullying politics. The problem is, is the ones that are getting the, are the noisiest and are getting the press and who are being assertive are the 30% who are taking over the process. And until the 70% have the courage to rise up and fight back, they will own the message. And it's really hard to do that. Um, it, but we can do it every day in our own little terms, not picking the fight, but not tolerating the bullying that we have got to learn to do. We have to do it in our legislature. We should do it individually. And if you don't show up in the process in the primary and the elections, then you've given your power away and your voice to those who did show up. And we've got to claim it back again. So, you know, it was interesting because I think in this very room about track of time five or six years ago, I think you had me here for a dinner. And one of the things that I um, spoke about was a Margaret Mead quote. And I did it in, in, a, in a way that even if you're a minority or you feel like you're outnumbered in where um, things are going, she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So when I said this to the group um, before, I was coming from a position of a Democrat who is probably the most minority, minority leader in the whole country. Um, but now there's one Republican that's the only Republican senator in Hawaii, I think. He's probably the most minority, minority leader. Anyway, the idea is, is where do you keep finding the courage to do something you have belief in that you want to do the best you possibly can for the people who you serve, or whatever you do, for your family, for, for your community, however you wish to serve, which I think people should do as much as they possibly can in today's climate. Where can you come and find the courage and the strength to continue to do it when what you're doing is so stacked against you? However that is. Can't get enough volunteers, you are trying to make something work that's going to improve the community, but you get blocked and obstructed doing this, and you, how do you find the energy to continue to do it? I don't think that we can back down. I don't want to give that power and voice away. And the only way you do that is to understand that if you come from a heart or from a place of empathy, or if you truly are open to sitting down with whoever you're sitting down and try your best path forward, you can change the world. But you have to be willing to put a lot of effort and try. It's not, you know, in today's society, we want immediate gratification. And we have about the attention span of a gnat <laughs> because of social media and everything comes at us um, right now. And, you know, when you're committed to something, it will take time. And when you're committed to doing it thoughtfully over time, it will be a good product in the end. But it isn't easy, isn't easy 
but we should be committed to try. Um, but on the other side, that quote now, unfortunately, makes me think that we should think about where we're headed. I, like I said, I'd argue that most of us don't agree that we like the way the politics are going. Because 30% um, of people who are coming this from a really angry, fearful position is not how we want to go forward in this country. But how do we change that? And so they have succeeded in co-opting, because it doesn't take a 50% to take over a democracy at all. Um, it just takes a committed 30 or 35%. You've seen this historically. You've seen this with other regimes of government. And so how do we stop that trajectory? And they have succeeded in changing our environment by being a committed small group of people who think they're doing the right thing. So we have to be as equally committed to turning around and saying, no, I think there needs to be a counterbalance to this and be as committed. Otherwise, they'll take it over. And so it's, it's something that I've been chewing on for a long time to see where it is that we can go with it. But um, I, I, I'm concerned that we need to hold um, our, our colleagues and the process accountable. And we need to allow for, which I had argued the legislature isn't always good at, that they need to hear the people. And the process needs to be as open and communicative as possible. And that we have to be fearless about not, about participating. Because really it is gonna impact all of us. It is impacting all of us. But it is possible to change it. And, um, and anyway, I just, I, I wanted to give sort of a lay of the land on a broader level. And I'm happy to answer any questions about um, how we can talk about the policy making that's likely to come. Um, and how I, I see more of how the legislature will probably roll itself out. But it's all brand new. Everybody got elected into it today. And, um, and I, with, I think the leadership, unfortunately, is um, the House, I'll be frank, the House Republican leadership is going to be aggressive. And the Democratic um, uh, Senate leadership is going to be probably more assertive than my tenure. So I'm hoping they're not all going to just pick the fight, that they're going to start to realize that they are equal colleagues in the room and that diplomacy is important. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Senator, for those wonderful, uh, wonderfully insightful remarks about the legislature that you've now just left. You've left it behind. Now, you were uh, well known for being a centrist, trying to be a consensus builder. Let me ask you for some remarks about some of the incoming leaders and what their leadership style might be. Um, let's start with your successor now, uh, Melissa Wintrow, who will be the new Senate Minority Leader. What sort of a legislative strategy or leadership does she like to employ? Well, um I'll be frank only because Melissa turned to me the other day, yesterday, and said, how do I run the floor? <laughs> and she started today, and I said, well, you've been watching me for several years, said, but I wasn't running it, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, no matter how, how much experience you might have when you're actually in a position, there are things you'll do every day that you feel like a freshman when you walk into that place, because nothing's static, it doesn't stay the same. And about the time you think that you've got a knowledge about something and you've set your course for the day, 
inevitably the minute you walk in the building, it blows up and you're flying by the seat of your pants. So, I mean, you just have to good about, be good about flying by the seat of your pants and hope you can, you know, make something good out of um, something that turned out other than what you thought it was going to be. Um, she is very strong, um, has a, a very... Um, uh, she's a gifted orator and is very uh, good for her constituency. She's strong. Um, she was running against uh, Janie Ward-Engelking for the minority leadership. Their styles are very different. Um, Janie, I would argue, would probably be more my, my style. I'm a mediator. I'm a negotiator. I look at it as a team. Everybody rises. I'm not always the spokesperson. If Janie is the best person on education, she's the one that's going to talk about education. I think we all. I think we punch above our weight as Democrats in the Senate because we do the work of three people and because we put our best skills forward, and that's how we've run it. Um, but understandably, it's going to be a much um, scrappier um, Senate than it has been ever before. And there are concerns, probably justifiably, about how they're going to defend themselves when you have a group of people who have come in saying they're going to blow things up. They've not been shy about it. We're going to go blow things up. And so do you put your leadership on both the Republican and Democratic side, and I'll speak to that a little bit on the House side as well, um, is... Um, do you get prepared for battle? Or do you prepare for good policy making and refuse to, to engage in the battle? And you can do both. It's not like you're, um, you're, you're weak if you don't always fight. Um, there's strategy to do that. Um, I would, uh, I, you know, I'm, I don't perceive myself as been a, being a, a weak minority leader because I would not in, always engage. I think that's very strategic. She's a, probably going to have a propensity to um, be a little scrappier and, and, and have a little more fight for her for, for the caucus, and that's obviously what the caucus wanted because that's what they chose. So that'll be a little different. Thank you. Sticking with the Senate for a moment, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned the great value of institutional knowledge mm -hmm. and having some veterans. Chuck Winder mm -hmm. on the Republican side was retained. Mm -hmm. uh, it, do you suppose he's going to have his hands full with new freshman senators who are, are very aggressive and, and want to be activists in nature? How might he respond to that? Well, the, he had his first taste of it as being um, uh, having Dan Foreman from up north run against him for a pro tem, so, and, and Foreman was one of those that said that he, he was in the legislature before, he knows how it works, so he knows how you can blow it up faster, his words. So um, it's going to be interesting to try to control that kind of activism I was mentioning um, in the middle of trying to do policy and budget. Um, also, a gentleman who transferred over who uh, tends to be more of that um, more combative uh, mentality ran against the um, or, uh, Senator Anthem, the majority leader of the Senate. Neither one of them won, but they saw right out of the gates that there is a section of the Senate that is prepared to fight them and wants to take over the leadership. And they are the ones that are also going to try to change the rules of the Senate because they don't want to be held by the existing rules. So that, I mean, I think they've got a taste of it. They're, they're going to need to be strong. And the only way you hold your boundaries as a leader is you do not relinquish and wiggle any of it and give in to any of it because you'll never reclaim it again. So it'll be interesting in the first weeks to see if they buckle or if they double down or how, how assertive their leadership will be. Um, they tend to be a little conflict adverse, and I've challenged them that they need to be stronger. Um, I love them all to pieces, but they're going to have their hands full. 
Let's follow up on one of your points. Uh, you mentioned some freshman members of the Senate want to change the Senate rules, mm -hmm. so they're on a longer leash. What, what might they attempt to do? What kinds of rules might change that would give them that uh, greater latitude? Well, we haven't actually seen, this is the Secretary of the Senate who told me this was already um, in the process. Um, her job is to make sure that we follow the rule of law, the parliamentary process, the rules of the Senate. And so she is the foremost parliamentarian for the Senate. And so when those things come to her, she has to say, that is completely against the law. And I cannot um, allow for you to go forward with that because it's, you would disintegrate the institution. And they say, well, how can we go in and amend it? And the amending process is a much more rigorous process than they think that they realize because it has to go through many, many steps, just like legislation has to go through many steps. And then it usually has to be approved by the people. I mean, look, we just passed a constitutional amendment, which I would argue uh, made the legislature more powerful. And it was a tight vote amongst Idahoans. Um, but the legislature has been pretty strategically trying to be the most powerful branch. You know that they were trying to pass laws that was taking power away from the governor. They um, passed this constitutional amendment or brought it to us because they want to be able to call themselves into session whenever they want to for whatever reason, anytime they want to. When Utah did that, they came in for special sessions seven times in the first year. So it'll make, us, it'll make it a much more chaotic body uh, without any kind of sideboards as to topics or duration, which is expensive to Idaho and taxpayers. Um, but also, it's just... Um, you, you see them trying to change the judiciary with um, the rules of the Judicial Council. If we allow them to break the rules, then you've lost all kind of infrastructure to it. And so uh, it has to be um, very strongly um, uh, maintained. And that's the decorum is every reason why people don't end up throwing things at each other and having fistfights on the floor. It's just never tolerated. And the structure looks really odd because you have to ask permission for everything. And it's laborious, but it's on purpose so things don't escalate. And they want it to escalate. And so that is going to be a, a real, um, it's going to be interesting to watch what happens this session. So that might be what keeps Scott Bedke so busy in his role. As <laughs> he might be right. arbitrating the floor more than he thinks. Right. Yeah, right. That's true. <laughs> so, so thank you. Turning to the House for a moment, uh -huh. a lot of people will say the House is the most powerful driver in the Idaho, in Idaho state government now because you have many aggressive, very activist members. Uh, what sorts of bills do you anticipate or what sorts of, of, of missions do you anticipate some of the newcomers or even some of the veterans will be undertaking in the House that might cause fits for the newly uh, elected House Speaker, uh, Mike Moyle? Well, again, if you look at who their caucus chose, um, they picked Mike Moyle as Speaker of the House, who's notoriously um, unapologetic about being assertive in his position. Um, uh, then you have uh, Megan Blanksma, who is one of the more difficult people I've had to work with. She's very strong um, temperament, and um, she doesn't, you know, she's hard on her own caucus and on the floor members. Um, then you have um, Sage Dixon, who is a gentleman, but has a certain um, um, more conservative politics. And then um, the one that took long last night to decide on was Ehart and Manwaring. 
and that eHeart even became dead even with men wearing is just a bit of a shocker to me, but I mean, it just shows what the reflection of the house looks like. And men wearing one, which I was pleased to see. But you have a pretty aggressive leadership team over there. And um, they're notoriously punitive to their members if they don't toe the line. I don't see that changing. It's a, it's a combat environment. And because of that, our democratic leadership tends, tends to be a little more assertive over there because they have to defend their lives in a very scrappy environment. So, um, um, so anything is possible because I think that they will, instead of working with their members how I think we all should be working collegiately together, I think they're going to be um, hard on them to make sure that whatever they choose to do, which will be, um, I mean, uh, now new speaker Moyle is probably going to, what he always does is he's very punitive against local governments and giving them many resources. And um, um, I don't see that changing. Um, he's got his pet projects. He'll have a platform to be, uh, not to say that his majority leadership wasn't a strong platform, probably as powerful as the speaker, but he's gonna be able to control that floor now. So um, it, whatever they choose to do, they are likely to get some success because they are in a position of immense power right now. Uh, speaking of the speaker, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, Speaker Bedke told me that the Idaho Freedom Caucus intimidated so many members of the Republican Party uh, and that they were very difficult uh, to deal with. And that uh, is a common uh, refrain echoed across the state. And, we have a number of fine questions here today, one of which probes the question of the influence of the Freedom Foundation. Uh, it, is, uh, it is characterized by the IRS as a 501c3, but exercises disproportionate influence in the, uh, in the bill, uh, with the development of the bills and the comments on, on the floor at, and so forth. And you've dealt with the Freedom Foundation uh, for uh, 13 years or so. Our, one of our questioners would like to know what can be done uh, to uh, undermine or to soften the influence of the Freedom Foundation. Ironically, I have a decent score for the Freedom Foundation, and I really didn't try. <laughs> but I, because I, so be, the problem with the Freedom Foundation is if they pick somebody they want to attack, they will attack them on. If you have a questionnaire, you're supposed to ask everybody equally on the same topics. And what they do is, when they want to bury somebody, they'll ask, ask a question that they disagreed on of that legislator and bury them, and ask one that they agree with, something that's a softball that they agree with, and they say, okay, you got a Freedom Foundation score, and this person we're gonna just bury, and you didn't hold them to the same standards. And it's, it's entirely unfair, but that's how they play. Um, we have to remember that particularly in North Idaho, um, according to the BSU survey, policy survey, which they do, 20% of the people who have moved in here like the Freedom Foundation politics and moved here because of the Freedom Foundation politics, and there are new voters. So some of that is driven by um, people who want it to be like that. And so what you've seen is the Freedom Foundation with outside money that's held unaccountable, which I would argue is, is probably unconstitutional because it's dark money, um, is also um, putting people, brand new people who haven't even lived in the state very long into positions, totally altering um, the, uh, the uh, county um, 
parties in, in a lot of places and putting people in them, and they're not following uh, Robert's Rules of Law or um, any of the, the, the proper um, meeting uh, requirements. And they, um, and, they're, and the other thing is, is they, at least in the primary, according to the Secretary of State, they were giving more money than what the campaign finance legalities allowed for, and um, they were not following the law. The problem was the Secretary of State didn't go after them and punitively fine them or criminalize them, and so they got to do what they got to do. And so until we enforce the laws we have to control that, it's gonna be really hard to um, curtail the behavior. But I think in the end, um, us as voters have to decide if we're gonna tolerate that kind of politicking anymore. Um, in the end, it's your vote that counts. We can write about it, we can, and we can try to pressure the legislature to make sure that we hold them accountable to follow campaign finance laws. Um, who we elect or whoever is appointed into our agencies and departments who are supposed to follow the laws we give to them have got to do their jobs. It'll be interesting to see if Phil McGrain um, is uh, much more, um, he, he is a parliamentarian as an Ada County clerk, very knowledgeable about um, uh, election laws, and I hope that he has a backbone and isn't manipulated by a party or by somebody like the Freedom Foundation, because I think he's he's going to be the first backstop of making sure that they're following um, proper so, laws. So the new Secretary of State will be the first person that media might turn to mm -hmm. in terms of, of questioning whether or not the Freedom Foundation is exceeding mm -hmm. uh, the law with respect to lobbying efforts and so forth. Good to note for the media who are here today. Thank you. Now, many of us know that their Idaho has enjoyed massive surpluses, and, I, and many Idahoans have been the beneficiaries of, of monies being returned. Can you offer a brief explanation about how Idaho has come by this massive surplus in the last couple of years or so? Well, first of all, Idaho has been the fastest growing state in about six years, particularly in the last three. Um, the growth has been tremendous. We've had a lot of outflux of people, old-time Idahoans that don't like what their communities are looking like or leaving as much as coming in. So when you see a statistic, double it, because the outflow and the inflow means that those that were replaced were double the amount that you thought there were, if you think about how that works. Um, and so they've, got, they've come in for their own ideas, and they come with the baggage of where they came from. California politics, Texas politics, Washington politics, and until they figure out where it is that they um, that that Idaho's politics are different, <laughs> they're they're going to probably have the 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 habit of looking at it from a different prism. Um, so they brought a lot of money in. You have more sales tax revenue coming in. You have income tax revenue coming in from that, and so your growth is going to generate that initially. Then through the federal programs, you had the CARES money that came in, and then the ARPA money, and infrastructure money, and, and some would argue, well, the deficit is spiraling out of control, but then it's an opportunity for the first time in a lifetime to take care of ailing infrastructure systems. We're sitting on brand, needing to put brand new systems in place because of the growth, or antiquated systems that are falling apart that are unhealthy for, for communities, if it's sewer and water systems. 
Um, our electrical grids cannot hold the capacity. We have an underperforming broadband system. We have the least amount of, of doctors and nurses and veterinarians and everything else per capita in the nation. We have the most medical deserts. And we have people moving in who are smacking all of those systems. And so I argue that you take it and you do something really, really smart with it, like revamp systems and make sure that you are doing something that works all across the state, not just regionally, instead of just giving out um, grants for Boise or Idaho Falls, those systems have to all work together. So look at it from a state perspective. And um, we've not done that particularly well in some things, and we've done it really well in others, but it is an opportunity for us to make much more um, uh, modern and upgraded and efficient systems um, because we tend to be at the bottom of most every infrastructure system per capita in the country. And so if you don't use them and you want to say, well, I'll give the money back, like we've done twice in the last year, is it safer for you to have better roads and better medical and, you know, your water is healthier and, and this sort of thing, or do you want your $300? I mean, which is better for you. Now in, in an economy like now where gas prices are high and people are struggling, I don't doubt that that helped some. But where is that better place for the greater number of Idahoans? And I think that we have to think strategically with that money. We do still have ARPA money and we still have a lot of people paying into the tax system. So, um, but I think oftentimes we go at it as being too austere that our, it ceases to function. We have 700 classrooms without teachers. We don't pay nearly as high as every state around us. We don't pay our agents and departments the same amount of money, so we train them and they go where they can get more money. Is that proper management of our resources? And those are the things we need to be talking about. Thank you very much. Here's a non-controversial question for you from our audience. Uh, what are your thoughts on the election here in Idaho uh, of some candidates who are election deniers? How is that going to work with the Idaho government? And the principal person in mind here is the new attorney general, the newly elected attorney general, Raul Abadar, who on this stage claimed that the 2020 election was rigged. Well, he, to my knowledge, is the only higher profile as far as state government or executive branch that has actually been a denier, as far as I can think, um, publicly. Um, and Within the legislature, whether they believe it or not, they're not going to run the legislature from that prism because then everybody questioned whether they were legally elected too, and I don't think they want to go there. Um, so, um, but those that are looking to how they will influence um, the next uh, presidential elections, his position as an attorney general and what he could do to sabotage the Idaho Constitution is concerning in my mind. Um, and so if he insists on saying that how it has been interpreted has been incorrect and does it in his own vision, um, there is very little to stop him um, because he is the determining factor for um, where all of that. Unfortunately, it will get contested by outside people who won't tolerate it being blown up or misinterpreted or altered and will likely spend unnecessary taxpayer dollars fighting it in court. Thank you. Will you please comment on the reconfiguration of your former district in Blaine County? Was that a function of gerrymandering? How would you describe the reconfiguration? 
I can't blame it on gerrymandering. Um, you know, the, we are very fortunate that in uh, 1994, both parties, actually driven by the Republican Party, um, back when one of you was saying that they were in an even Senate with Cecil Andrus as governor, so long time ago when we actually had even numbers in the houses. Um, we have a Citizens Commission on Redistricting, and it's three Democrats and three Republicans. They are appointed and they cannot be elected. Their choice is very rigorous on purpose so that there isn't any, I mean, it's not to say there's no partisan influence because it's partisan people who put them in place, but um, they have to, first of all, take the census and split the districts evenly by number. Then you have to make sure you break as few counties apart and the Supreme Court allows for like six to eight counties being split, otherwise not. And um, you wanna do communities of interest. And by the time you go through the checklist of what's required by constitution, the map starts to make itself. And with all this growth, we knew that in my central Idaho area, because we're dead center in the middle of the map, um, we're gonna get pulled apart because everything else around us grew. I mean, you guys grew more over here, Twin Falls grew more, Boise certainly grew. And so just by, by population, you start to pull all that fabric apart. So in the end, if you have to have same numbers and you have to have whole counties, the next concern was communities of interest. And so we are region-centric to um, Twin Falls. That's where all our regional offices, that's where we get our food from, that is all our workforce comes up there to, the, to um, Blaine County. It isn't Idaho Falls if we'd been pushed over into Custer or, or Butte County. It isn't Mountain Home if we'd been pushed over into Elmore. Those wouldn't have been communities of interest. And so we knew that was gonna happen. We advocated knowing it would gonna make it an even 50-50 district for Democrats and Republicans, that that was the only map that made sense and was fair. And so we ended up, instead of Camas, Gooding, Lincoln, and Blaine counties, we ended up with Blaine, Lincoln, and Jerome counties. And Thank you. I want to blend a couple of questions here as our time expires. Uh, given the lopsided nature of party representation in the Idaho legislature, is it fair to say that when Idahoans have a complaint about policies and programs and laws, that they know where to turn with those complaints? That is, that they are products of the Republican Party? Well, we've tried for a long time to say that the Republican Party has been in power for all this time, so if you don't like what it is, go talk to them, but that doesn't seem to work. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in fairness, um, each of us should be available to the people who want to speak to us about what their concerns are or what they hope to change or whatever that is. And I would, like I mentioned, there are those of us who, I don't ask your party when you call me up and say, this is what I, I need from you. It's, I, you're my constituent, how can I help you? Um, but there are members who, who have publicly said, even when the majority of their own constituencies don't agree with them, that they were not gonna vote with them. And then you have to decide as a constituent who voted for this person whether they're actually serving you or hearing you. And um, so it is really independent from one uh, legislator to another. Thank you. In, in the few available moments that we have, let's take you back in time. You were 16 years old <laughs> in Peru and a coup erupted. What was that like? What was your experience like? I had just turned 16 from Wisconsin. And, um, and I arrived, and they had a coup shortly after I arrived. I was an exchange student in Lima, Peru, and 
Um, back then, there was no social media, no cell phones and anything like that. Um, and so when they shut it down, they take over the airport, the post office, um, they shut down the streets, they have machine guns, tanks, and curfews, and, and they're actively taking out existing dignitaries, political people, and um, some of them um, to death, and some of them, you know, just um, imprisoning them. And, um, and oftentimes, since the, peop the people I lived with, he was the president of the Catholic University in Lima, and they oftentimes attack um, uh, uh, professors. I mean, that's typical under coups. They'll go after people who are free-thinking um, of any kind. So um, it was the strangest thing. I, my parents thought I'd disappeared in a dark hole, and there was no way to communicate. They couldn't manage the mail, so they burned everything. Once they, they pilfered everything of value out of it, and nothing functioned. And um, the, the message is, you don't want systems to not function. It's not pretty. <laughs> and so in a lot of the world that I have had the honor of working in a lot of uh, developing worlds and under uh, privileged areas, when there's no infrastructure or safety net, we like to uh, complain about how it is that, um, you know, that we're a nanny state and the government's always taking care of us. And to a certain degree, we have to have more autonomy and responsibility for our own lives. But having nothing in place is not a place we want to be. It is um, it's a very dark, dangerous place to be. But, um, but yeah, that was my first lesson. Um, I didn't want to go into politics at that point, but <laughs> here I am. <laughs> so, Senator, you have a wealth of experience having served as Idaho's longest running Senate Minority Leader. You're steeped in knowledge about mm -hmm. government. Our, our audience would like to know, what are your plans for the future? What comes next for Michelle Stennett? I chose to do nothing and to be and not do and take a breath. <laughs> and that's kind of, uh, it's been 30 years of, um, with my husband and I um, going back and forth. I don't know what I'm going to do when I can actually go on the mountain and ski and I don't have to drive every weekend in bad weather to Boise and back because <laughs> we've done it for a long time. But um, I'm really looking forward to whatever doors open and whatever ventures ahead. But I purposely didn't jump into something else because I really want to just observe for a little while. So. Well, we'll see what we can do about getting you back here to this stage. <laughs> Let's say a warm thank you to Senator Michelle Stennett. Thank you very much for your remarks. See you next month on January 9th for our program with Idaho Public Television. Thank you all for coming. Happy holidays. The Idaho Falls City Club on KISU is supported by the Idaho Humanities Council, promoting good citizenship through civil discourse, civic engagement, and reflection on the public good. More information is online at idahohumanities.org.